If you will, turn in your Bibles uh, to the 15th chapter, the Gospel of uh, John, beginning in verse 14 as we continue our study through the Word. Now, you will remember that Jesus is celebrating this last meal with his disciples, the last uh, supper, and, and it has been a turbulent uh, meal. They came together for this celebration and they were quarreling on their way in and Jesus then washes their feet, tells them that one of them is going to betray him, tells Peter he's going to deny him and, and then tells them that he's leaving, that where he's going they can't come and, and we see that he is ministering and pouring into them. He tells them that he's not going to leave them orphans but that there is going to be the helper, the Holy Spirit that he is going to send to them. And, and then last time you'll remember that he talked about abiding and he talked about the fact that he is uh, the true vine. Now, we talked last time about how the nation of Israel was the vine, but now we see that, uh, that God is going to, to change and replace that vine. And it's interesting because in Isaiah chapter 5, there is what is known as the song of the vineyard. And, and there we see that it talks about how God had carefully cultivated this vine. He had taken it, he had planted, he had dug around it, put walls around it, and that he expected fruitfulness to come forth from the vineyard that he had planted. But when he found no fruit then we see that in the song of the vineyard that God is going to replace that vine with a more fruitful vine and so oftentimes people think that 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 replacement uh, of the vine with the fruitful vine is the church but I want you to know that here Jesus shows us theologically that it's not the church that it's him. You see, theologically, you would come to God through the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, it was through an ethnic, a group, uh, a nation that God chose through Abraham to raise up, and he would be the true and the living God over his people. And then if you wanted to come to God, you would come to the nation of Israel, and you would join with them in the worship of the true and the living God. But now, no longer longer was it going to be ethnic no longer was it going to be geographical but now it is going to be through the vine that everybody who wants to come through God would come through this vine and this vine is none other than Jesus Christ now the Jews are able to come just like the rest of the world is to connect to the vine and to have access to God, but no longer are they uh, the nation that God is using as his witness and his testimony here upon the earth. Now, he talked about this vine relationship, and he talked about when you connect to the vine, the importance of abiding in it, that, that relational connection where the sap, the love of God, will flow 
into your life and it needs to be that steady consistent abiding relationship and when you do that you are going to experience fruit that that is what god created you for that that fruit that you are going to produce in in your life that is the love uh, that is how people are going to know that you're connected to the vine when there is love coming out of your life in a supernatural way greater than in the natural capacity to love people when there is a spirit of peace when there is gentleness and kindness and and loveliness it's the fragrance of christ that's going to be manifested in your life as the fruit of being connected to christ and and so we then saw also that Jesus talked about the fact that, that we are now called to love one another as I have loved you and that Jesus laid that example down now that this abiding connection to God is going to transform our lateral relationships and where do we live out our Christianity laterally. Where does the world see it? In our relationships. They'll know that you're my disciples by the love that you have one for another. And so it is not just to be this pious relationship where we stay in ivory towers, reading and praying and and worshiping. There is to be a practical manifestation of our abiding relationship. We're not to withdraw from the world. We are to live in the world and we are to love and by this uh, God is going to be glorified he went on to then talk about love and and sacrificial love and this sacrificial love was the epitome of that was going to be demonstrated as jesus was about to go to the cross and lay down his life and that was when he declared that no greater love is a man than this that he would lay down his life for his friends so he's talking about an abiding relationship here and sacrificial love here that this abiding relationship is what is going to fill us with with the capacity to live sacrificially with uh, one another and and here we see that Jesus is pouring out his heart as now he he is just moments away from from his departure from the upper room and heading over to the agony in the garden of Gethsemane Judas is in the process of betraying him the soldiers are uh, are now being assembled and and all of these things are taking place as Jesus is putting the finishing touches on the hearts of the disciples, getting ready for them to be without him as he is now going to go through what he had agreed to before the foundations of the earth were even laid, and that is for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross to finish the rescue mission our salvation our rescue from sin we pick it up here in verse 14 where jesus says you are my friends uh, if you do whatever i command you and so here again we see that there is the if clause you you are my friends if you stay within uh, our vows now a husband and a wife uh, they make their vows uh, and what is the the vow that vow of love is that promise now to to have each other's back 
to love one another. And, and here we see that Jesus is declaring that you have that abiding relationship with me if you continue in what? In those vows uh, of, uh, of allegiance, of loyalty. And, and now in verse 15, he says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. So here we see that there is an elevation of relationship that Jesus is making as he is departing from them as he is getting ready now for his own crucifixion. He, he elevates them to the status of uh, a friend. In verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And so Jesus here declares that you did not choose me. Now, I want you to know that back in that day, the disciples of a rabbi, they would choose the rabbi that they were going to follow. Now you'll remember that Gamaliel was one of the great rabbis in, in Paul's day, and you'll remember that he was Saul of Tarsus. Uh, and as a young person, as a young man, he moved into Jerusalem and, and sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He chose Gamaliel. Today our kids will choose the college that they are going to do uh, and then they apply to that in college that's the college that they selected to go to so you would approach a rabbi you would select a rabbi and then you would come to the rabbi and say rabbi i, I want to be your disciple and and then the rabbi would either accept or reject you jesus is letting them know that uh, one of you came to me and said i want to be your disciple <laughs> i chose you to be my disciples. It was the exact opposite way in, in which you would follow after a rabbi. You'll remember how Jesus put a call onto each and every one of their lives to leave your life, depart and come and follow after me. And, and, and so he is declaring that you didn't choose me, but, but I chose you. And now uh, I am elevating you. I chose you for a reason, appointed you that you should what? Go and bear fruit. And so we see here that that fruit is going to abide. And, and so the, the formation of this group to now bring the love of Christ into the world and that they would be fruitful. But in order for them to be fruitful, they're going to need to abide in Jesus. Now it's interesting, he's talking about an abiding relationship with them right before they what? Scatter. <laughs> right before they disconnect, right before Peter's, I, I swear to you, I don't even know the man. I've never, so he's talking about the necessity of abiding exactly right before their failure to abide. And, and yet we see that there is going to be that, that reconnection. They are going to experience that failure in their life. And through that failure, now they are going to grow and be more connected to the Lord. Have you ever failed the Lord? Have you ever disconnected from, uh, from the Lord and denied him with words or actions or behaviors or conduct? And then what happens? We have the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
And then there is that brokenness before the Lord. And, and then there is the, the repentance. And then there is the godly sorrow. And, and then what happens? There is the forgiveness and the restoration. And, and now having learned from that, we walk more circumspectly as we continue to grow. All of the, all of the apostles are going to start off the gate, ready, set, go, and they all fall down. <laughs> Just flat on the ground. You can't have a worse start than the disciples do after they are taught the principle of abiding that, that, that they have. Now, the Bible tells us that there's none righteous, no what? Not one, not, not one of us. None of us are A students. We are all part of the remedial group, you know. We, we have got our sin. We have got our flesh. We have got our own desires and passions. And, and this cultivation of this abiding relationship is not an instantaneous, easy process. We were born and lived with a sin nature. And that nature needs to undergo that transformation and and so here again he's instructing them in things what in things they're not going to be able to do because they're not going to be able to do this without what the power of the holy spirit in, in their life you are not going to be able to abide and follow in christ in your own strength it is not a matter of willpower it is a matter of surrender and empowerment and enable through the Holy Spirit. And so and here we see that Jesus is telling them the purpose and reminding them that whatever they fail, whatever they are short in, in spiritual resources, in order to what? Stay abiding in Christ. Then all they need to do is ask. Remember to ask. Remember to ask. Remember to ask. Keep bringing your need. Your need what? Your need to abide. And so how, how, how do we do that? It's so important to reflect. Reflection is so important to stop and to evaluate how is my relationship doing, Lord? Where am I doing well? And Lord, where am I falling short? And then to be able to say, Lord, in the areas that I'm falling short, will you help me? Will you strengthen me in those areas? Will you show me how to be able to be victorious in the areas that I am struggling with? And so the, the importance of stopping and reflecting and evaluating does what? It draws attention to the need and then the need we act on. And Jesus says, bring your need talk to the father he's going to send you the aid he's going to send you the help i see so oftentimes people don't reflect on their relationship with the lord they just keep on going day to day day to day day to day day to day and they never stop and and evaluate how how is our relationship going so here he is he has given them the principle of abiding and he has told them that what when you fall short and ask and that god's desire for your life listen is fruitfulness that he has given you everything to be successful now you need to learn how to appropriate that and to be able to live it out and to walk it out these things i command you that you what 
that you love one another. What's the purpose of that abiding relationship is to be able now to have the resources to love the people that are in your lives. And every single day, the people around you are going to create different circumstances and challenges to love them. Sometimes they're in a great mood. It's like, oh, this is an easy day today. <laughs> and sometimes it's like, you're impossible today. I don't know what is where you're at. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're emotional beings. And, and so the gambit to be able to love the people around you in a sacrificial way is going to vary from day to day. And we need to have the resources to be able to love even on those difficult days. And so here again, he is teaching them and it's instructing them. You need to abide in your shortcomings to ask. The resources will be there so that what? So that you can go and love one another. And that is going to be the manifestation that you're abiding in me. The world's not going to be able to have the resources to love sacrificially. They're going to have to love in their own strength. And their own strength is so limited and so paltry compared to the resources of God that are going to flow in us and through us and give us that great capacity to love uh, one another. And so he continues to bring it back down to that new commandment that I give you. It's about this abiding and loving one another relationship uh, here. Now he shifts gears and and talks about what they're going to expect uh, after his departure. And here's what they're going to expect, persecution. And he needs to get them ready for the persecution. Up until now, the persecution has all been centered on Christ. They've been his followers, but the opposition has been focused uh, on him. Once uh, Christ uh, is crucified, uh, then the opposition and the persecution is going to be directed at his followers. And so he needs to prepare them emotionally for that. And so he tells them, if the world hates you, you know that it hates hated me before it hated you. And so that if the world uh, hates you, when the world uh, hates you, because the world is going to hate you, they are going to start to experience it firsthand. Jesus, uh, we see, experienced the world's hatred against him from the moment that he was born. You remember that Herod sought to destroy him and to kill him and to have all the babies slaughtered there that were born in Bethlehem going after him. The persecution of Jesus was throughout his entire life and ministry. But know now that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus was hated from his birth. And we are also hated from our birth, from our second birth. From the moment that you became a Christian, the persecution against you by the world began. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so here we see the fundamental reason for the, the world's hatred of Christians lies in our differences. We, we are called out of the world. Now, in John's gospel, the world is the system of organized society that's hostile to God. 
You see, organized society. And organized society wants to be the absolute authority. And so the government, the organized society over uh, people, they want 100% allegiance to them and they want to act as God. So we see that there is the kingdom of God and then there is this organized society that is hostile to God and it is underneath Satan's power. And those are the two kingdoms uh, that we see. You're either in one or the other. And here we see that it is this fundamental difference now between the world and the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter 4, Peter writes, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. The, the world can't understand why we won't join the party that why we refuse, why we are sticks in the mud and how we are narrow in our thinking and, and will not expand to inclusion and diversity and, and all of the things that they are pushing and they, they cannot understand it. They just simply know that we oppose them, that we will not get with the program. And, and so we see the the hatred uh, of uh, the world why why was this hatred so virulent the roman government is going to persecute the the early church relentlessly and the reason for it is is that they saw and many times the government today sees the christian as a disloyal citizen the position of the government the roman empire was vast I mean, it stretched from Great Britain all the way to the Euphrates River, and, and we see that it went from North Africa all the way to Germany. It was expansive of nations and languages, and all of these cultures were brought together under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. And so what, what unified all of this diversity underneath the government was uh, the, the Caesar worship. You see, every single person in the Roman Empire needed to take a pinch of incense once a year and then burn that incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And then you were allowed afterwards to go and to worship any god that you wanted to. You were uh, given complete uh, freedom. But the Christian could not do that. The Christian would not elevate Caesar to Lord. Jesus is a Lord. And so because they would not do what the entire Roman Empire, they were looked on as disloyal and they were looked upon as dangerous. And so Jesus here is quite explicit uh, and he told the disciples beforehand what they are going to expect. And Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There, there is no doubt that you are going to suffer persecution from the world. In verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, now Jesus is saying this to them, before they're about to see him hang on a cross crucified, before they are about to experience Jesus being arrested and Jesus being scourged and Jesus having a crown of thorns pounded into his head. 
He is saying this on the eve of these things that are about to come. And so to them, he is saying it hypothetically, but later on they will understand the reality of the words that Jesus was speaking to them. If they persecuted me. And the disciples at that point might have thought, man, they are persecuting you, Jesus. Remember that they were in fear of coming up to the Passover because of the division, because the last time that he was there, the, the religious leaders picked up stones to stone him, but they had seen nothing yet. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Man, this had to be, th th Jesus just keeps on dropping bombs on, <laughs> on them. You know, you're, you're going to fall away. I'm leaving. You can't come. And now guess what? You're going to be persecuted by, by the world. And, and we see the reality that Jesus now is giving them truth. He is giving them more truth than, than they can handle right now. But yet, and he says to them in verse 21, but all these things they will do for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And so here again, we see that before the law, the law came that we would know right from wrong. Without the law, there, there is no breaking the law. If there is no speed limit posted on the road, then you can't speed. <laughs> no one can give you a ticket. The Autobahn, you can go whatever speed you want uh, on the Autobahn, and, and there's no speeding tickets. And so before the law there was no speed limit. But now the law came, what? That you might know when you're speeding and when you're not speeding here. And, and now he says to them, if they had not had the light presented to them, then they would have been ignorant of that light. But now they have had the light presented to them and they're rejecting the light. So there is a significant difference uh, between those two things. He who hates me hates my father also. Jesus just summarizes opposition to him. People are opposed to Christ. They're going to find their own path to God. All roads lead to God. And here Jesus just simply declares, if you are opposed to me, listen, you are opposed to to God the Father. And there is no workaround to that. He is talking to them about the consequences of their rejection. They're not rejecting the Messiah. They're rejecting God who sent the Messiah. The words that Jesus spoke, he says, they're not my words. I gave you the words of the Father. When you reject my words, you're rejecting the Father's words. When you hate me, you're hating the Father who sent me. He says, I speak only the words that have been revealed to me. And so Jesus now, acting underneath and led and powered by the Holy Spirit, is declaring only the words that God the Father was having him to declare. And so there is that direct correlation between the Son and the Father. In verse 24, he says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, what are the works? Well, let's see. 
The healing of the lepers, amazing. Never in the history of the world. And yet in the law, listen, at Mount Sinai, when God gives to Moses the law, there is the ceremony of now reinstating a leper who has been healed uh, back into fellowship again. Now, that had never been used in the history of the world. Why? No leper had ever been healed. And yet it had been placed in the law before Christ ever came. When Jesus heals the lepers, he tells them, go and show yourselves to the priests as a testimony. Now, they show themselves to the priests, and, and I've been healed of leprosy, and now there's a ceremony for the cleansing of a leper, but they had to like blow the dust off of that and find it because it had never been done, and no one had ever done that. That was a, a messianic claim upon the ministry and life of Christ. The healing of the blind, the lame, the sick, the raising of the dead, the stilling of the wind and the waves, the casting out of demons wherever he went, the power and authority that Jesus demonstrated. Who else has ever demonstrated power and authority like this? Because of the works that I have done in front of them. And what were those? That was his resume. That I'm the Messiah. Prove to me you're the Messiah. Here you go. And here are the works that proved that Jesus was the Messiah. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. They have seen the works that Lazarus was raised out of the tomb there. And all of the witnesses, and what did they decide to do? We need to murder Lazarus now. We, we need to cover the evidence, uh, and we need to get Lazarus out of the way because Lazarus is pointing people to Jesus. And so here we see that they have hated both me, and now the connection again, also my father. But now Jesus softens it, and he says, but none of these things were unexpected. What do you mean none of these things were unexpected? No, all of them were in fulfillment of the scriptures. And here again, Jesus is going to point to the way in which the Old Testament created a portrait of Christ, even down to the details now that he was hated without a cause. In verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Psalm 35, 19. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. You see, the enemies of Christ, they are wrongfully the enemies of Christ. They were wrongfully the enemies of Christ back then, and they are wrongfully the enemies of Christ today. Jesus came to seek and to save. Jesus came to illuminate and bring light into the world. Jesus came to bring the love of God down to the earth. Jesus came to rescue us from our sin. What has he done wrong? How can a person be opposed to the one that has offered peace and has brought love? And so anybody that is opposed to Jesus Christ is wrongfully opposed to Jesus Christ. But he says that this happened in fulfillment of the scriptures. But when the helper comes, here again we see that Jesus now is letting them know that what they're about to experience, the persecution from the world, that they are going to have help in overcoming this persecution. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And so, just uh, as the Son was sent from the Father, so also the Spirit is going to be sent uh, from the Father. He's going to proceed uh, from the Father. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so, here we see that the disciples are going to go forth and bear fruit, and they also now are going to be able to witness. They are going to be able to declare, to declare what they know to be true. That is a witness. You have a witness testify of what they know to be true. And so, as believers, we are going to be able to testify this is who I was before Christ, and this is who I now am in Christ. And that is going to be your own personal testimony. Jesus has declared these truths, and then we are able in our lives to bear witness to the truths that Jesus has declared as we experience them in our own lives by doing what? Abiding. And as we abide then we are going to have a manifestation of that and fruit in our lives, and we will be able to point to the source of that fruit, which is the vine, and then invite everybody else to connect to the vine as well. As we close our study here, I want to draw attention for a moment back to verse 14, back to where Jesus talked about the fact that if... If you abide, if you do what I command, uh, if you stay within our relational commitment, uh, then you are my friends. And in friendship with Jesus, what an amazing, what an amazing declaration that Jesus makes uh, as he is about to depart now from them. They have been his disciples. And his disciples, but not in the way in which normal disciples were made. They didn't even choose him. He chose them. They didn't even want to follow Jesus. They, they were invited to, to come. You want to follow me? Come. And he invites them into that relationship. And now here they are as his disciples, servants, if you will. The, the disciple never knew what the, the rabbi was going to do next. You just followed the instruction of the rabbi. And where the rabbi went, you went. And he was never telling you what he was going to do. You just followed after. And, and so you had this discipleship relationship with the rabbi. Now the rabbi would have friends and those friends would be the equals, the peer group that, that he would have, and then he would have his disciples. And, and Jesus now elevates his disciples into friends. And, and there is this amazing, amazing elevation to friendship here from just simply discipleship. Friends. You got me 
and thinking about friends and, and, and how we like to tell people who our important friends uh, are. When people have an important friends, they'll, they'll let you know who those uh, friends are. And, and, and so I, I was speaking with my son the other day and he was telling me that, that this teacher that he knows lives right next door to this ex-New England Patriot football player. And he couldn't believe that they lived right next to, to this linebacker for the New England Patriots. And, and, and it was like, you know, you're a neighbor to, you're a neighbor to somebody that, you know, that is famous. And, and, and then as a neighbor, you might become an acquaintance if you meet him at the mailbox. Uh, now you can live next to them and never see them, but you can be an acquaintance when you, you bump into them. And then if you get to invite it over to their house, you can actually then move from an acquaintance to a friend. Uh, I have a friend that is a New England Patriot, ex-player they win. And, and, and so this friendship, you know, that you have. And, and it's like, you know, who are you friends with? What famous people are you friends with? And, and I think about, you know, Abraham. And Abraham was called a friend of God. A friend of God. It's like if you're going to sit there and start tossing around the famous people that you're friends with, how about when Abraham goes, uh, you know who my friend is? God. <laughs> and that kind of trumps every other famous person that, that you can have. And, you know, and we see back in Genesis you know, where it talks about the fact that, uh, that, it, that you are my friend. Shall I, ab- shall I hide from Abraham this thing which I do, asks the Lord? And he says, no, I shall not hide it. Friends talk about their plans and the things that they are going to do and what they're intending and, and all of these things. They, they share those kind of things. You don't share those things with a, a disciple, but we see in Second Chronicles, it says, are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? In the scriptures, it talks about Abraham as the friend of God. But now Jesus is declaring that we are his friends. Up until this day, you might not have thought that you had any important friends. But I want you to know that you have the most important of all friends. What a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. The friendship of Christ to you. You might feel like you don't have any friends whatsoever. And that is just simply not true. You have the most important friend uh, that there is. That friendship of Jesus, knowing that you have got a friend in Jesus, how how valuable, how precious, how life-changing. It made me think of that famous poem, Footprints in the Sand. One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene I noticed footprints in the sand. And sometimes there were two sets of footprints and other times there were one set of footprints. And this bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life when I was suffering 
from anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could only see one set of footprints. And so I said to the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why? When I needed you most, have you not been there for me? And the Lord replied, the times when you have seen only one set of footprints is when I carried you. And I thought about a friend that walks with you. The Bible says that two are better than one, for if one should fall, the other is there to help them to stand back up again. A friend that will stick closer to you than a brother, who will never leave you and never depart. And a friend who, when you fall down, because of the trials, the anguish, the sorrow, the pain in this life that you will experience, that he is there to pick you up and carry you. A friend who when you don't have anything left, says we can keep on going, I will carry you, and picks you up and carries you. The friendship of Jesus Christ, the number of times that he has picked me up, and carried me through difficult stretches when I had no resources and no strength. I had no more try in me. When you get to that point where I've got no more try in me, those are the times that he just says, I still have try in me. And he picks us up and carries us. He is not just Lord. He is not just Savior. He is friend that will get you to the finish line, that will get you to the gates of heaven, and he will announce you to his Father when you stand before him. This is my friend. What a friend we have. He is not just Lord and Savior. He is friend. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your friendship, Lord, that you bear our burdens, that you help us, that you carry us when necessary. Lord, would you continue to minister to each and every one of us, bless us and help us, Lord, carry us through our anguish, our sorrow, and our defeats, Lord. And Father, thank you. Thank you that you would send to us your son, that he would be our friend. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.